0: Welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin.
1: And I'm Haley.
0: We talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago.
1: We are, and it's our first regular episode of Spooky Season. That's right. It is. I am just going to apologize for my voice in advance. Believe it or not, (laughs) alert the media. I'm sick again. (laughs) No way. Literally sick every three weeks. I'm sick with something. (laughs) This time it's strep. So that's really fun. so
0: fun for us. Feels
1: great. Love it.
0: Our day-to-day life is totally not affected by that in any way.
1: No. (laughs) But But, I'm like just so in the spooky mood. We've got so many fun topics that it's like impossible for me to not tell you about them as we're going. I feel like I've done a better job than normal though.
0: Oh wow. I like
1: keeping them close to my chest. Besides, oh, yes. I did I did tell you this one, what what it was, but yes. I didn't tell you about it yet. And I've
0: heard about it before. But before we get too far down the road on that, my love, do you even know what you're drinking?
1: I don't because you made it for me. I
0: sure did. I, you like how I set you up for that one?
1: Yeah. Why don't you tell everybody what so am I drinking?
0: What you are drinking before your throat is uh, some tea, the mm-hmm. the celestial seasoning seasons, celestial seasons either seasons or seasonings i think it's seasons celestial seasons tea that's a lot of s's in that sentence
1: well c's also and, and T's. c's
0: a lot of s sounds <laughs> uh and it is the wild berry flavor caffeine free so we'll see if you make it through this whole episode
1: i'm gonna make it
0: and it's herbal wow plus it's got a little dash of some honey from wahoo nebraska
1: Wow. Just
0: to really, you know, take you home.
1: Shout out to Norbert's. (laughs) Norbert's bees.
0: Norbert's bees.
1: They make the best honey. I mean, all bees make really great honey, but I really like Norbs.
0: Yeah, that's fair.
1: What about you? What did you make for yourself?
0: Well, I almost never have this. In fact, I had forgotten it even existed until a friend ordered it for me after Mm -hmm. a concert that you and I went to together. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's a little not exactly the same. But she ordered me a Sprite and a whiskey, which I was like, Sprite and whiskey, do those go together? Of course they do. It's a whiskey sour, basically. And uh, so I was like, oh, well, we've got some 7-Up and I've got some whiskey. So I'm going to do one of those.
1: Wow. We both sound very enthusiastic tonight. (laughs) I know.
0: Well, no, legitimately, I'm excited about it.
1: Good. Does it taste good?
0: Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it's great. Well, good for you. Yeah. Something fun. Look at us. It was with the uh, the Zero Sugar 7-Up. So, mm. you know, it's really the healthy choice.
1: <laughs> it is better, I will say. And it tastes yes. pretty good. That's one of the, like top the top tier Zero Sugars, in my that's opinion. True. I would agree. Yeah.
0: Well, you got a feel-good fact for us since we're back on that Thursday grind.
1: I don't. I, I'm i just doing the spooky fact. Oh, that's right. That's right. October, all October. All
0: month long, we're doing spooky fact.
1: They're still fun facts, though. They're not actually spooky. They're just... Spooky related and and lighthearted. So, yes. the city of Keene, New Hampshire holds the Guinness World Record for the largest number of lit jack-o'-lanterns. Their 2013 display featured 30,581 jack-o'-lanterns, all carved and lit at once. Wow. That's a lot of jack-o'-lanterns. That is a
0: whole... I have a hard time making one jack-o'-lantern. I know. Let alone these people. I'm. You know that there's people who...
1: It's like a team of people. They
0: sit down and they make... 500 jack-o'-lanterns that, that blows my mind yeah that's incredible wild.
1: well wow. done i mean we'll see maybe in our lifetime someone will beat that record but that's a tough record to beat
0: it's oh, intense i love that me too well my dear what do you got for us this week
1: all right so we are going to be talking about a legendary creature the dybbuk and the boxes that they call home Seeped in darkness and known to operate with vengeful and nefarious purposes, the Dybbuk has made several appearances in various forms of Jewish literature and apparently may even lurk in an unassuming place, such as in an antique box that a few different people were unlucky enough to take home with them. Mm. So sit down by the fire and settle in, because this one's a doozy.
0: Awesome. Let's go. All
1: right, so we're going to start off with a little background on the Dybbuk. But first, my little disclaimer is that the Dybbuk... From my understanding, the Dybbuk is not a fixture in all of Jewish folklore, but primarily in Kabbalic and European Jewish folklore. Hmm. Okay. And so if I'm incorrect on any of that, please feel free to send us a message and let me know because I'm not trying to insult anybody's yeah. <laughs> anybody's backgrounds. So um, I'm going to do my best to sum up the Dybbuk and what they're all about, and I'll try and make some distinctions along the way. So from what I gathered, Dybbuk's are not technically demons. However, according to Kabbalistic mythology, Dibbqs come from the dominion of evil, referred to as the Sitra Ahra, or the other side. Oh, I probably butchered that, my apologies. So thinking of it as an like, inversion of the divine world, the other side is indwelt and ruled by demons, while it's angels who have dominion and responsibility to care for our world. Hmm. And so a Dibbq is a kind of like, it's like an offshoot of a demon. Okay. from what from my understanding so the name dibbek comes from the hebrew word davik meaning to cleave or to cling so the dibbek is a parasitic evil spirit who possesses the body of another person the very mm. act of an evil spirit clinging to its host is also considered to be an inversion of the idea of clinging to the father once again taking a light concept and flipping it on his head.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: So in Kabbalah, demons are a character that are very common, which is why Dibbicks and demons can be so easily conflated with one another. Demons can take many shapes, such as appearing as a dog or a cat, where dibbcks are depicted as evil spirits who would cling to the souls of those who were denied entry into Gehenna, which is essentially Jewish purgatory. Hmm. They may also cling to souls that were lost or had unfinished business during their lifetime that they needed to complete or atone for in the afterlife. I've also seen it explained that the Dybbuk may attach to the soul of someone who was improperly buried or had their grave disturbed. Hmm. So either way, the Dybbuk would possess and then steer the lost soul into a living human's body, which was mutually beneficial for the Dybbuk and for the lost soul. The soul would have a host, and the Dibbuk could get up to some serious debauchery. But we'll talk more about that in just a minute. Okay. So interestingly, the word Dibbock didn't appear in Kabbalah or Talmudic literature, despite their importance to the Jewish faith. Instead, it's believed both the Old and New Testament of the Bible featured these figures, but with a different name, Hmm. such as an unclean spirit, an evil spirit, or a, quote, spirit of, insert negative term here.
0: Oh, okay. Interesting
1: it's believed that these were actually just informal names for dibbics. Huh. We see plenty of examples of unclean spirits in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels. And I mean, take your pick because there's a solid handful that Jesus himself dealt with. And so according to this belief, all of those unclean spirits could be classified as dibbics based off of how they behaved and what the possession process looked like in each of those stories. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, so Hmm. evil spirits are mentioned far less in the Old Testament, but there are still a few examples, such as in 1 Samuel 18, where we see Saul being overtaken by, quote, a spirit of melancholy Mm -hmm. or a, quote, distressing spirit. And then David came in with his harp and played him a little jingle to try and, like, rid the king of his problem. But then Saul lashed out in uncharacteristic anger at David's song, opting to throw a spear at him, which further indicates that he had been possessed.
0: Wow, so he was
1: acting erratically. He was, oh, yeah, like overtaken by anger, all of these things that were not common in his behavior,
0: yeah. Well, and if I remember correctly, there's even a point earlier on in that story where David comes in, plays his harp, and the evil spirit does leave Saul. Mm. So, like, there's a little bit of a contrast of, like it works one time, but then the second time it doesn't, maybe because Saul's been fully possessed or fully, sure. you know, clung to what you want to say. Spooky. Yeah. yeah.
1: So the word Dybbuk first appeared sometime in the 16th or 17th century in spoken Jewish practice and then in Jewish literature in the 17th century and was believed to be part of a process known as the transmigration of souls, which is a process that's kind of similar to reincarnation. The overall idea was that the human soul was capable of reaching perfection, but not in one lifetime. 16th century mystic Isaac Luria believed that the Dybbuk was part of that cycle, in a sense, and so he used the figure to explain his transmigration theory. This idea was accepted in a few different Second Temple circles and was spread and became more widely accepted as well. So where does the Dybbuk fit into this? Yeah. Luria believed that there were souls that had committed such serious atrocities that they were no longer allowed to transmigrate and thus had to attach to other lost souls in order to complete self-perfection or perhaps in spite of that very idea. Mm. But those souls would then need a physical host, thus possessing whatever poor soul they could latch on to. So does that make sense?
0: Yes. Yes. It makes it's sense. It's kind of
1: like their origin yeah, is is birthed in that transmigration process.
0: Yeah. So there's a whole lot of, of history happening um, across a pretty wide range of a timeline. Because mm-hmm. what, what's described in the Gospels, we assume is within the first century, early first century. Mm-hmm. And then this whole concept really doesn't come to uh, really any clear articulation until... You said the mid sixteenth century.
1: Yeah, like in spoken practice, but not written until the seventeenth century.
0: Yeah, so even mm-hmm. still, it takes then it's that much longer until it's even written about. Right. So there's a lot of time between those two play, between those two things to uh-huh. like kind of live in the gray area of it, um, which is interesting. And then you also brought up uh, second temple writing kind mm-hmm. of stuff, mm-hmm. um, which for anybody that doesn't already know what that is um that's primarily jewish writings that happen after the the old testament is 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 basically closed right
1: yes so i believe that the second temple time period is after the last book of the old testament and it goes through the roman siege of the temple in 70 ad okay if i if i remember correctly cool, cool. yes
0: great so those are those are just pieces of writing that kind of help set set the tone for that. And that's also where a lot of divergence, I think, happens in mm-hmm. Judaism and Christianity mm-hmm. is with those books. Yeah. Which is interesting. Um, and so that's kind of some, it, there, like I already said, there's a wide timeline, but it's not like they just made this up in the 1600s. This is something right. that like, they're they're basing it off of these older writings.
1: It sounds like Luria was basically trying to find a through line between mm-hmm. these specific like characters that he was seeing coming up repeatedly. Yeah. And that was how he explained what those were and then how they would fit into his theory that souls can transmigrate. Hmm. And so it was like, he was attempting to build a bridge from... The beginning of the Second Temple time to where he was at in history. Yeah. And it took off in European Jewish culture. Yeah. So,
0: wow, yeah. that's really interesting. I'm sure there's more to that, but let's go ahead and I'm keep sure on, it's keep more complicated rolling. than yeah, that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, the most likely candidates for Dybbuk possessions were doubters, those that struggled with doubting certain core Orthodox tenets of the faith. Those who committed private sins or remained in unrepentant sin could also be a candidate. Most often, the person afflicted by Dybbuk possession was either an addict of some, like, forbidden substance, like drugs, or someone suffering from certain mental illnesses. And women were disproportionately believed to be possessed by a divic rather than men. Mm. To me, this kind of screams Victorian mental health care. Like, yeah, this woman yeah. is depressed, suffering from PPD or PMS or something <laughs> like that. That, like, we would have a definition for today. And instead of those things being treated, they were seen as hysterical. yeah or possessed by an evil spirit.
0: Right. But, what was the what was the uh the the doctor's um uh reasoning f- in our last episode? an episode just 3 days ago.
1: Female troubles.
0: Female troubles, yeah. yeah. Female troubles. Couldn't figure out why this woman Dybbuk. was sick.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right. Right. By the time the Dybbuk made its way into the general public, it just so happened to be around the same time that the witch trials were taking place, and while some would be accused of witchcraft, Many women who were believed to be possessed by a Dybbuk were usually not burned at the stake or killed in some other gruesome manner, but instead were ridded of their affliction by way of a very specific exorcism ritual.
0: What? This is interesting. You Never heard of that before. Super
1: fascinating. So I've seen a few different sources explaining what the Dybbuk exorcism entails. So I'm just going to kind of pick one and stick with it. Okay. Because I've seen it explained in a few different ways. So what is the same across the board is that these exorcisms are very different from the ones that we've seen of Catholic exorcisms, like in the movies Hmm. and in other pop culture over the years. Across the board, the purpose of the ritual was to remove the Dybbuk from the possessed person and to either give the Dybbuk a chance to repent for their sins so they could be placed back in the transmigration cycle, or in exceptionally bad cases, the spirit was simply banished back to the land of the dead. Hmm. The possessed person would be brought to a synagogue and would be, the whole process would be conducted by 10 Jewish men who had undergone certain prayer and fasting rituals preceding the exorcism to, as like purification. Mm, sure, yeah. They would be clad in white robes, prayer shawls, and sacred parchments from daily prayer would be wrapped around their arms. From there, the rabbi of the group would address the dibbek by name. He'd either go into the ritual knowing the name of the Dybbuk because they'd already identified themselves at some point during the possession, or they would get the Dybbuk to admit its name at some point during the exorcism process. But it was important for the rabbi to know the Dybbuk's name. They would then list out the known sins committed by the dibbuk spirit in life and use those sins against it, either as a threat so the spirit would realize how serious its offenses were, and so they could attempt to make it right or to weaken it enough to drive it out. Wow. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. If if I'm not making sense at any point, just stop me.
0: No, it's just different because we're so used to um, even if, you know, Hollywood makes it a little bit dramatized, we're so used to that kind of an exorcism. And right. this is this is a, a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So
1: So the possessed person would then sit in a squatting position while seven Torah scrolls would be opened, seven ram's horns would be blown, and seven black candles would be lit. (laughs) The men would then recite certain prayers or psalms and chant, chant God's name with different pronunciations. Throughout this whole process, the men conducting the ritual would need to remain calm and should never show any fear they would instruct the spirit to exit the body between the big toe and toenail in order to avoid injuring the afflicted person. And once it was finally exorcised, the Dybbuk would be commanded to never enter another living host and then would be banished. Wow. So it's like a whole thing.
0: Yeah. So it, it is almost as dramatic as a Hollywood exorcism yeah. that we see on in the movies. But it's also, it sounds very just like the whole point is that they they stay calm. Mm-hmm. They're they're not screaming it. and no. people yeah. aren't getting
1: thrown around and right. all that kind of stuff.
0: But there is a degree of authority mm-hmm. and they're like in charge of this whole scene. Yeah. Which is, yes. Which is crazy. Huh.
1: It's an interesting image that yeah. I got from all of that. It totally is. So there are plenty of interesting stories about Dybbuk exorcisms, but it's kind of hard to know which ones are actual accounts and which ones are just creative stories, like kind of based off of the process of the exorcisms. So I'm not going to dive super deep into any of them since I just don't know which ones are legitimate and which ones aren't. That's fair. There was one that I saw that was like the Dybbuk spoke through the host person and told the rabbi that was doing the exorcism that it had previously been like their student, the rabbi's student in life when they were studying to become a rabbi themselves before their untimely death. Like, wow. I don't know if that one's true either, but they were able to like say the name of the school that they taught hmm. that he like learned under yeah. him at. And like, that's really interesting. Super crazy. <laughs> and like said, this is how I died. And it was how that student happened to have died. So, like, really bizarre, but I don't know if it's true or not. Right, right. So, in 2001, a fellow by the name of Kevin Manis was browsing at an estate sale in Portland, Oregon. Kevin worked as a repairman and shop owner specializing in antique furniture, and so it was a regular occurrence for him to attend these estate sales in hopes of finding some truly unique pieces that he could restore and then sell. So as he was looking around, he found several interesting pieces, including an old music box and a super old-looking wine cabinet that he wanted to repair and give to his mother as a gift for her upcoming birthday. After paying for his items, the woman running the sale approached him. She was the granddaughter of the original owner of these items, and she brought up the wine cabinet to Kevin. She said something to the effect of, oh, I see you've bought the Dybbuk box. Hmm. She went on to tell him that her grandmother, a 103-year-old Jewish woman named Havela, had recently passed away and all of the items had belonged to her. Can we just give a round of applause to Havela for making it 103 years? Because that's like super impressive. Havela was born and raised in Poland. She and her family were taken into Polish concentration camps, and Havela was the only survivor. Oh, she lost sad. her parents, husband, her two sons, and her daughter, but was able to escape the camp and flee to Spain until the war was over. Wow. She lived in Spain for a few more years and eventually immigrated to the United States, where she remarried and had more children. But when she came over, she only bought three or brought, excuse me, three items with her from Spain, one of which was this wine cabinet. For her whole life, the granddaughter grew up with Havela telling the children to never go near the wine cabinet, which she called the Dybbuk box. She kept it locked up and away out of the reach of the children in her sewing room. Hmm. At one point, the granddaughter had asked Havela what was in the strange box that she kept in the sewing room. Havela replied by spitting three times through her fingers and telling her that it was a Dybbuk and that it should never be opened under any circumstances.
0: Wow. So it was like a
1: like a ritual thing.
0: To talk about it.
1: Yeah, to just to mention the name, which I thought was and I know that in many, many, many cultures, names are so important, Mm -hmm. so significant. Mm -hmm. And so I was unable to find much else about that, but it would line up with certain specific things that we've seen when we're talking about, you know, forbidden names and things like that. You know. Like yeah. that kind of idea.
0: Yeah. And the rituals of like spitting three times through through your fingers, like there were seven Torahs and seven Rams. Like there's a yeah. numerology element to it, yeah. which is really interesting.
1: Super fascinating. Um,
0: but it's all tied together with this strange entity. So, yes. Yeah.
1: Novella was so attached to the box that she actually asked if she could be buried with it, but was ultimately declined her wish since burying someone with an object like that was against orthodoxy for Jewish burial. And so Mm. it ended up with the rest of her grandmother's belongings in the estate sale. Kevin kind of felt bad, like he was somehow intruding on this family's history by taking away such a central heirloom. So he offered to give it back, even going as far as to allowing the granddaughter to keep the money that he'd spent on it, but she refused. Mm. Kevin insisted, telling the woman that he didn't want to take away a keepsake from her family, and at this, the woman actually got upset at him, screaming at him that he had bought it and that they'd made a deal. Oh, wow. Kevin tried to apologize, but the granddaughter interrupted, asking him to just leave. She began crying and quickly walked away from him. Kevin thought that the whole exchange was a little odd, obviously, but he didn't think much of it once he got back to his shop. He simply put the wine cabinet in the basement and planned on working on it over the next month so it would be ready in time for his mom's birthday. Hmm. From there, Kevin opened up the shop and told the saleswoman working that day that he'd be back after he finished running some errands. A short time later, like within 30 or so minutes, Kevin got a call from the store. It was the saleswoman and she was absolutely hysterical. She screamed at Kevin that someone had broken into the basement workshop and that whoever it was was breaking things and screaming obscenities. And worse still, whoever it was had locked the iron security gates and the emergency exit. So she was trapped inside of the store with whoever this monstrous person was. Oh
0: my gosh.
1: Kevin told her to call the police, and before he got a response, his phone died. So 2001. Oh my gosh. Leaving him racing back to the store in fear for the well being of the shop and, more importantly, for his saleswoman's safety. Mm -hmm. When he got there, the gates were still locked. He had to finagle with them, but was able to finally get inside. When he got in, the woman was in one of the corners of the store, curled up in a ball, sobbing, like almost like half catatonic, half hysterical. She was like in shock. She had been terrified. Yeah. Yeah. Kevin ran down to the basement. Sure. He was about to catch the intruder in the act, because there was only one way in and out of the basement shop. Mm-hmm. And the saleswoman hadn't seen anyone exit. Right. And even if she had, the doors were locked anyways. Right. Like the gates were locked. So he opened the basement door and was hit with a strong odor of cat urine. Ooh. He didn't have a cat. But more bizarrely, there was no intruder there. The only evidence of anyone being in the basement as at all was the fact that all of the basement light bulbs had been shattered. Ten incandescent bulbs. And four tube lights just totally smashed to bits.
0: That's a huge, gross mess, too.
1: Yeah. When Kevin went back upstairs to check on the saleswoman, she was nowhere to be found. She had fled the (laughs) store and opted never to return to work at the antique shop.
0: That, understandable.
1: Honestly, smart move. (laughs) At this time, Kevin had no real reason to believe that what had just happened could be connected to the wine cabinet that he just bought. But things quickly got much worse. Mm. Two weeks later, Kevin decided to get to work on refinishing the cabinet for his mom. He was able to get it open and inside he found one 1928 U.S. wheat penny, one 1925 U.S. wheat penny, one small lock of blonde hair bound with string, one small lock of black brown hair bound with string, one small granite statue engraved and gilded with Hebrew letters, which he was later told spelled out Shalom, one dried rosebud, one golden wine cup, and one very strange black cast-iron candlestick holder with octopus legs.
0: Hmm. That is a little strange.
1: It's like a conglomeration. Yeah. He put the items in a box, intending to send them back to the family, and then he got to work on the cabinet. He actually decided not to refinish the piece because it was so unique and so well-made. And he also found a Hebrew inscription, On the box, which kind of added to the charm. Yeah. So he decided he was just going to carefully clean it with lemon oil. And soon enough, it was in fabulous condition. The perfect gift for his mom.
0: Oh, that's so sweet. He's all excited about it. Yes, except.
1: (laughs) Except. Kevin couldn't get together with his mom, Ida, on her actual birthday, which was October 28th. But the two made plans to get lunch together three days later on Halloween, October 31st. Fun. Ida came to the shop and the two were excited about their lunch plans, but before taking off, Kevin decided to show his mother the wine cabinet, informing her that he'd found it and restored it for her as a gift for her birthday. She really loved the piece, and as she stood admiring it, Kevin stepped away to make one quick phone call before the two would head out. In the five minutes that he was gone, however, something terrible happened. Oh, no. Kevin returned to where the cabinet was and found his mother unresponsive, sitting in a chair, expressionless with tears rolling down her cheeks. She had suffered from a stroke that would leave her hospitalized. And although she survived, Ida was left partially paralyzed and even unable to speak for a short time due to the severity of her stroke. Oh my. So like we're going from something being like a little bit creepy and spooky to like a serious medical crisis. Yeah. Thankfully, she would regain her ability to speak and she could understand what people were saying to her. And so before she could speak again, she would point to letters on a board to communicate with doctors and family Mm -hmm. who came to visit her. The following day, Kevin went in to go see her. And while he was there, Ida pointed to the letters N-O-G-I-F-T, no gift. He thought maybe she was confused, like maybe she was saying that he never got her a birthday gift. So he gently reminded her that he had gotten her a gift. I, I got you that cabinet, remember? To which she responded by spelling out the words H-A-T-E-G-I-F-T. Hate gift.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs>
1: he just sort of giggled and told her not to worry about it and that they'd go pick out something different later when she was feeling better. Sure. <laughs> so he's not really connecting anything Right. All that strange. Right. He just thinks my mom suffered a medical incident. Right.
0: And because of it, maybe like, because of the medical incident, now that's associated with the gift or right. something. Like, right, Yeah.
1: So Ida's memory of the incident was hazy, but she would later recall that as she was admiring the cabinet, she opened it up to look at the inside. And that's when she was struck with a cold breeze coming from inside of the cabinet. And then suddenly she was filled with dread and the feeling of pure evil that began permeating the room. Whoa. Within a few seconds, she had had her stroke. So it was like a very fast ordeal. In the immediate aftermath of her stroke, Kevin tried to get rid of the cabinet several times. And I would just like to say, I feel like there are better ideas that he could have come up with for this. (laughs) I'm just going to say it that way. Okay. So first he gave the cabinet to his sister, But she kept it only for a week, insisting that it reeked like cat urine and the doors kept popping open on their own accord, which she thought was maybe a spring malfunction. Oh,
0: wow, that would be horrifying, but okay.
1: This was confusing to Kevin because there was no issue with the springs or any other mechanisms on the piece at all, but he took it back anyways. He then gave it to his brother, who insisted that it smelled like jasmine flowers, but his sister-in-law insisted that it smelled like cat urine, so they too gave it back within just a couple of days. Hmm. He then gave it to his girlfriend, who (laughs) gave it back after two days. She asked him to sell it, which he promptly did, only to discover that the middle-aged couple who had purchased it had brought it back to the shop and left it outside after hours with a note attached that explained they no longer wanted it because it, quote, had a bad darkness.
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) Wow.
1: (laughs) Which is like, I don't, I feel like giving something to your loved ones that even if We we take the spiritual creepy stuff out of it. Mm -hmm. Like, your mom had a stroke looking at this piece. Like, wouldn't negative things be attached to it anyways? Like, she would have a negative memory attached to it. She goes and visits one of his siblings, and she has to, like, relive that again. You know what I mean? I feel like even that was a bad idea. But, like, with what we'll find out later, I'm like, you gave that to your girlfriend?
0: Oh, my (laughs) God. Why
1: would you do that? (laughs) Kevin. (laughs) So Kevin was kind of at a loss at this point. He wasn't really putting anything together about the cabinet having something actually wrong with it. So he actually decided just to bring it home once again. But things would continue to get worse. He began having these awful nightmares where he'd be on a walk with a dear friend who would suddenly morph into a scary old hag and then would proceed to, quote, beat the living tar out of me. Oh, my gosh. He would wake up startled and covered in mysterious bruises in the exact same areas where he'd been attacked in his dream.
0: Oh, that's so creepy.
1: This nightmare happened repeatedly and frequently. A while later, Kevin was sitting together with his sister, brother, and sister-in-law, and for whatever reason, Kevin's reoccurring nightmare came up in conversation. His siblings froze as he explained the demonic sinister appearance of the old hag in his dreams, and he was stunned to learn that they had all had the exact same dreams.
0: What
1: they were able to figure out that they not only had the same dream, but that they all had it when they were in the possession of the box.
0: Weird. Which, oh my that gosh. was the light
1: bulb for Kevin. Right. He finally realized that maybe something's not quite right with this maybe cabinet. There
0: is something dark about something this
1: is afoot, certainly. Ooh. So in the weeks that followed the discussion about the nightmare, Kevin continued to have strange experiences. He would see what he described as shadow people in his periphery. When he locked the cabinet in his outside storage unit, he would be awakened by the sound of the fire alarm going off inside of the unit. But then he'd run outside and go unlock it and like look inside. He discovered that not only was there no fire, but that the whole unit smelled horribly of cat urine. What? Which I feel like I probably should have mentioned this earlier, but Kevin didn't own a cat. Right. Like nowhere. You did,
0: you did mention that. Oh, I did. Oh, yeah. 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 When I, when yeah.
1: he smelled it at the shop. Right. None of these people own cats. So it doesn't make sense that he's getting that smell.
0: Right. Well, and it's odd that that wasn't something that he noticed when he bought it. Mm-hmm. He doesn't notice it in any other like, time. Well, he's, his he puts one it in brother- the shop to sell it. It doesn't smell like it. Yeah. People are noticing it in like particular moments, it sounds like. Yeah.
1: Well, and then That's that so one weird. sibling of his, I think it was his brother smelled the jasmine flowers. Right. It didn't smell like urine to him. And like jasmine and cat urine smell very different Those from are each not other. the same. thing. <laughs> <laughs> They're yeah. very different. So Kevin would continue having the nightmare about the hag beating him up and several more odd things would happen. He would wake up to the feeling of someone breathing on the back of his neck, despite the fact that he was sleeping alone. The Hmm. shadow figures would begin chasing him down the hall or would come running at him from out of nowhere. The lease to his store was also randomly terminated without cause. Hmm. All 10 of the fish in his aquarium died at the same time. And finally, Kevin had had enough. It was clear to him now that all of his problems pointed to his possession of the cabinet or the Dybbuk box, as the granddaughter had called it. And so he decided to get rid of it once and for all. He was immediately opposed to the idea of destroying the box because he was worried that if he did, that whatever was attached to it would remain with him. Mm. But after doing some digging, he quickly figured out that there was a market for items that were believed to be cursed. So he actually listed the Dybbuk box for sale on eBay in 2003. (laughs) He titled the listing Dybbuk box and included the story that I just told you, listing the item for sale, and it was quickly purchased for $140. Wow. The recipient of the box, a Missouri college student by the name of Yosef Nitschke, wouldn't hold on to the box very long either.
0: That is an interesting person to buy that, I feel like.
1: Yeah, agreed. He
0: has, he has an interesting name for it. He lives in Missouri. He's a college student, you said? Mm-hmm. That's a very strange person to buy something like that.
1: Yeah, it'll make a little bit more sense here in a second. Okay, okay. So immediately after acquiring the box, Yosef began experiencing health complications such as coughing up blood, full body welts and hives with no medical explanation. Uh, He suffered random hair loss and a string of other terrible incidents back to back. And so with the help of his roommate, he sold the box again on eBay, this time for $280. Oh,
0: turning a profit though. Yeah,
1: but Yosef was just relieved to get it off of his hands. The new owner was a museum director at the Museum of Osteopathic Medicine at AT, also located in Missouri. And this guy was named Jason Haxton. <laughs> so from what I was reading, Jason Haxton worked at this museum and Joseph's roommate also worked at this museum. And so I think there was like a shared
0: oh, interesting. interest okay, in yeah. things
1: like that. Yeah, and so then, yeah, yeah. hey, I was just talking about this with the buddies at work. You should totally get that. It's really cool. Whatever. And yeah. so then Yosef brings it home, doesn't work <laughs> out. He's able to resell it. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Immediately after receiving the box, Jason was also hit with a string of violent bad luck, starting first with his physical health. He dealt with bleeding from the eyes. Oh, general illness, terrible nightmares about being attacked by an evil hag, etc. <gasps>
0: Oh, crazy. Very Where's creepy. That back again? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Haxton did whatever research he could about the box in order to uncover what was actually going on with it. He was a skeptic and very science-minded. And so he was not immediately bought into the idea that the box definitely had some evil entity attached to it. Mm-hmm. But still his like he called it a tidal wave of bad luck, hmm. was miserable enough and seemed to be so unrelenting that he's like all right, there must be something to this. Sure. Eventually, he went on to write a nonfiction book about his experience and about what he learned about Dybbuk's and Dibbic Dybbuk boxes, selling the rights to his story in the years to come. Mm. In 2012, the movie The Possession was made, loosely based on Jason's experience, and he and Kevin Manis were both consulting producers on the film.
0: Mm. Wow, that's crazy, actually.
1: Yeah. Interestingly, there were plenty of odd occurrences surrounding the production of the film, such as unlit lights suddenly exploding and all of the props being burned in a fire after production on the film had wrapped.
0: No way.
1: Yeah. Wow. In 2016, Zach Bagans finally convinced Jason to sell the box to him so he could put it on display. And quickly, it became one of the most famous pieces at his museum, being labeled as the most haunted object in the world at the Haunted Museum. And the notoriety of the Dybbuk box has only grown in the year since. Wild. In 2018, (laughs) Bagans planned on opening the box on live TV, but opted not to, claiming to be struck with an intense sensation of absolute dread and being reduced to tears as he approached the box. A short time later, Post Malone, Posty. I love that this isn't the first time that we've talked about Post Malone on here. (laughs) So Post Malone visited the museum and the two went back to go look at the Dybbuk box. So as Bagans was touching the box and talking about it, he rested his hand on it. Posty then put his hand on Bagans' shoulder and immediately recoiled, feeling as though something was terribly wrong. Mm. In the uh, the months that followed, Post Malone was in a plane accident that required an emergency landing. He was in a high-speed car accident. His home was broken into, etc. And so many credit this string of occurrences to his indirect contact with the Dybbuk box.
0: That's pretty wild.
1: And then in 2020, Bagans actually did open up the Dybbuk box as part of his quarantine special, a four-part series that culminated in the box being opened once and for all.
0: Yeah, that was definitely something that we needed in the middle of that year. Like, (laughs) Leave
1: the room, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) He also, so this is super weird. So when he opened the box, he supposedly heard someone whisper the name Kevin and evil.
0: Mm. He also
1: heard the sound of a child's voice. He claimed to have seen a pair of evil eyes emerge in a fog when it was finally opened, and they filmed the whole thing. So I actually haven't watched it. I
0: haven't either. I have. So but I have. very he- wild. This is where I've heard of it because up until this point, the only the only uh, things that I r- recall ever learning about the dibic box is the movie The Possession, which I'm pretty sure you and I watched. Yeah, we did. And uh, the fact that Zach Baggins has the box in his museum. And Mm -hmm. we, when we were in Las Vegas, we were like, should Should we go? go? And we didn't. Um, But that's it. That's all that I know about this. So those are the little bits of information that I'm aware of in the quarantine special, but that was a...
1: You didn't watch it?
0: I I haven't seen it, huh? No, me neither. We should find it at some point. Now we know what we're going to watch next, I think.
1: Yeah, we (laughs) we might have to. So in the years since the original 2003 eBay listing, Kevin Manis gave an interview to Charles Moss with Inverse in June of 2021. And he claimed that his listing was a work of creative fiction. He challenges anyone to find any literature or other sources about Dybbuk boxes from before 2003, insisting that nobody will ever find it because he invented the term and wrote the listing, having a feeling that it would gain some level of traction. But since the notoriety of the Dybuk box didn't hit the mainstream until Jason Haxton's book release and then the release of The Possession in 2012, there's sort of a rivalry between the two men, Mm -hmm. each insisting that the other would have never had a career surrounding the Dybbuk box or would have made a scent with like from their individual work on it. Right. So Mm. and I like it's weird because I actually don't really disagree with either of them. I I feel like I would side more with Kevin for being the one who created it. But like Jason knew where to take it.
0: Yeah, that's true. You know? That's true. So from still very it's it's a little strange and a little bit disheartening to hear someone say, by the way to spoil all of this, I made it up.
1: Yeah. <laughs> like, I almost I'm didn't like, in- oh. include that, but I was like, I kind of have you to. You kind of
0: have to, yeah.
1: I kind of have yeah. to. He said that he would tattoo your name on his forehead if you could find any reference to a Dybbuk box before his listing on eBay.
0: That's interesting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: hmm Okay, well.
1: So from my understanding, that's where the story ends. The illusion and fantastical story of the cursed Dybbuk box being revealed as a carefully concocted hoax. But still this hasn't stopped the craze. Dibic boxes have their own slew of fans on online stores such as eBay and Etsy, and there are even YouTube videos of users opening Dibic boxes that they claimed to have bought from the dark web. Mm. And while people like Kevin Manis, who is Jewish and knew of the Dibic legend, will say that the very idea of a Dibic box is silly, others still have shared stories with their own bad luck after acquiring a Dibic box of their own. And so you never know. It actually might be a possibility. Mm. And so, if you stumble upon an old cabinet in a thrift shop or at a garage sale, make sure you ask the right questions before bringing it home. And that is what I have for you today,
0: wow, that is insane,
1: yeah, I had to ruin the fun at the end, but
0: you you did. But that <laughs> still doesn't necessarily like ruin it's still a it. great story. It's a great story. And is he also saying that, like, the story of the grandma? that came from yeah. Poland, that's all fictional? Yes. Okay, interesting. So, even with that being the case, that if that's true that he made it all up, then there's still something interesting about what a Dybbuk is. Yeah. You know, like all of that is still up for grabs right. to have that conversation. It's a
1: fascinating creature in right. Jewish folklore. It's a, it's a fascinating creature. Right. And I love to applaud human creativity where he looked at this creature, its namesake, what it behaved like and said, wouldn't it be wild if instead of clinging to a person, it could cling to an object and could cause all kinds of trouble. Yeah, Like that was such a creative thing. It was like, I mean, he was just so ahead. He, he really tapped into something. Right. Very fascinating based off of an old, 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 Character.
0: Right. Well, and it's a little bit of a similar kind of story as a year ago this month. We talked, we had an episode about cursed objects, mm-hmm. specifically some cursed dolls. Yeah. And that's its own famous thing that people have made movies about.
1: Yeah. Um, Remember those little Celtic figures?
0: Yeah. Oh, I do vaguely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There was that little one, and everybody who had the thing with them had terrible accents. And some of them were kind of funny, like the guy's zipper broke. Right on the way to like go give a huge <laughs> right like talk at a conference or something. <laughs> like other people like broke an arm and right. like got a head injury. It was right. like serious.
0: So this is still based on those kinds of stories, mm-hmm. something that could happen, whether it's a Dybbuk or not, who knows, whether it's um actually attached to that piece, you know, no one knows whether mm-hmm. whether if it's true at all. Whatever. But the concept itself, itself still has legs, which is really interesting to me, and mm-hmm. it's like that's entertaining yeah. for what it's worth. It is, and it's also like it's not the first time we've heard of, it, of an item being cursed or having yeah a, something attached to it or whatever. Mm-hmm. This is just the one that the guy that made up the story told us. You yeah. know, that's yeah. really the only difference, right? So it's really, really wild, really interesting.
1: I thought that was a fun one.
0: That is super fun. Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today. If you are not already, please make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on your favorite listening platform and that you leave a glowing five-star review or whatever equivalent a five-star review is on that platform. Um, Those do help so much to get other people who... Uh, listen to podcasts like this to be exposed to this one. So please do that. Also, if you're not already, go ahead and follow us on social media on Instagram and TikTok at this one is a doozy, and on Facebook this one's a doozy podcast. And uh, comment, like, share the stuff that we're posting up there, and you know, interact with us there. And for even further interaction, you can connect with us directly over on Patreon. My love, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about Patreon.
1: Yeah, so you can follow the link in our Instagram bio or our Facebook about section, or you can go to patreon.com slash JuicyPod and for $5 a month, you can support our show. Supporters on Patreon get access to all of our episodes ad-free as well as two monthly bonus episodes that are exclusive, very special, only for Patreon. And for the whole month of October, there will also be a weekly bonus episode exclusive on Patreon as well.
0: Oh, yeah. All right. Well, with that, we will see you next week. At really, tomorrow, actually. We'll see you tomorrow because we have got some special uh, fictional stories happening all month long as well.
1: That's on Patreon.
0: Oh, that's just on Patreon.
1: It is. Oh.
0: Well, you're more, than, more reason to get over on we'll Patreon. See we'll see some, some of, you of you tomorrow. tomorrow. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll see you next on uh, yeah the early part of next week. No, that's Patreon too. Boy, everybody, (laughs) you're going to miss out so much if you're not over on Patreon this month. (laughs) Otherwise, we'll see you next Thursday for For another another
1: doozy. (laughs) Bye.